2: Tom here for my friends at Walzer Automotive Group with some exciting news. Walzer's rolling out Walzer Care on new and most used cars they sell in Minnesota. Well, Walzer Care is a powertrain warranty with coverage for 10 years or 150,000 miles. Powertrain coverage is like major medical coverage for your car. Engines, transmissions, all the really expensive stuff is covered. In addition, Walzer Care includes 24 hour roadside assistance, lock your keys in your car, run out of gas, have a flat tire. Guess what? Walzer has your back. The best thing about Walzer Care, it's free with purchase. That's right, I said free. So if you're shopping for a new or used Subaru, Honda, Nissan, Mazda Toyota Buick, GMC Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, Ram, Hyundai, or Chevrolet, see my friends at Walzer and get Walzer Care for free. What's going on? My favorite album of all one of them of all time. Many,
4: too many of you crying
2: Marvin Gaye, ladies and gentlemen. Marvin Gaye and Tommy B. Belting it out together.
3: Doug, what do you think? Um, well, one of them was a great singer. <laughs> <laughs> Although Thank not you. anymore. I thought, was good too.
2: I thought he was a good singer. I don't know why you had to blast them like that. I tell you,
3: I I, I think I've told you this before, I don't like it when people mess with the national anthem and do all that yodeling stuff. Yeah. yeah, But if you uh, ever get a chance, Google or go to YouTube and look up Marvin Gaye, 1983 NBA All-Star Game. He does the coolest version of the national anthem with just like a Dr. Rhythm beatbox that you've ever seen. It's just as smooth as a $20 martini. It's really cool. Is it as good as Bleeding Gums Murphy on The Simpsons? <laughs> well, unbelievably, he's even better than Bleeding Gums. He
2: <laughs> is really. I love it when he starts the national anthem.
3: Oh, I said, uh, Oh. <laughs> See, that's what I mean about yodeling the anthem. Yeah. We're not Switzerland. Yeah. Stop the yodeling. Just sing the damn tune. We got Wilford it's on the phone. Oh, uh, real Wilford's ready to go. Wilford Riley. The
2: book is called Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Wilfred, it's pretty interesting just watching the news, and, and uh, I don't know what to tell you about the situation in America right now. I look back because I, I grew up in, in the city, and I grew up in a, in a mixed-race neighborhood, and I didn't have any problems with it whatsoever, but apparently we've all had horrendous problems forever, and they're, they're only getting worse rather than better, and I don't really... I don't believe that. I just don't believe it. What do you think, Wilfred?
5: Well, that's good because it's not... Well, oh, yeah, it's good. it's good you don't believe that because it's not true. Uh, Listen, so, Why did, why, why wait, do you hear it so much? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, as, as you mentioned, I wrote the book Hate Crime Hoax, and the book has a pretty simple theme. Um, most of the sort of widely reported recent hate crimes that we've heard about in the media, whether you're talking about Jussie Smollett, who apparently paid uh-huh. uh, two Nigerian pro-bodybuilders to beat him up Uh, Covington Catholic a little before that, where the claim was that this group of kind of prep school athletes had surrounded this Native American Indian elder. They chanted, Build the Wall. They tried to take his people's sacred drum. Going back through Duke Lacrosse, uh, University of Virginia, where the claim is that the fraternities were running these anti-women rape rings. Key in college with the death threats, Wisconsin Parkside with the nooses. What I found doing research about a year or two ago, and what I break down in the book is that all of those turned out to be completely false and they were fakes. They were hoaxes. And I think that ties into the question you asked, which is, is there a lot of ethnic conflict? And no, I'm from the South side of Chicago. I'm from Bridgeport, which is a black and Irish American neighborhood. And the experience that most people have in day to day life is, there's not a massive amount of racial conflict. The USA is not an incredibly hate-filled country. So one of the things I look at is why there's such a disconnect between the reality most people experience, where 30% of marriages are mixed across racial or religious lines, and kind of the perception we see in the media, where there are black and white guys fighting in the street with sticks, and kids are being kidnapped, and sharks are attacking people. And the answer is that a lot of the stuff in the mainstream media is simply made up. Um, many of the incidents involved, if you look at literally the 10 I hate hoaxes I just ran through, never happened. If they did happen, if you look at the Black Lives Matter cases, they are wildly exaggerated. The stories that we hear, hands up, don't shoot, really don't have much, if any, resemblance to what actually happened. And I think that in addition to the you know, rampant left-wing bias of the media, there's also a bias that's probably worse towards sensationalism. What yes. gets people clicking? Yes. What gets yeah. people nervous? what gets people buying big trucks and Viagra pills? And that's not reality. <laughs> be, the answer would be country girls. You got a point there.
2: Yeah. Wilfred, why do you think it is that people want to believe there's racial strife in America? Look, it's never been perfect, obviously. And a and hundred years ago, 150 years ago now, I guess it, it would be more than that. Um, it was horrible. But the rest of the world is still horrible. But we're, look, there's slavery existing everywhere in the world except for Canada, the United States of America, Western Europe, and Australia. Pretty much everywhere else there still is slavery, but somehow the United States is the Mm. worst offender of all time. I don't, look, it should never have happened, don't get me wrong. But again, the Spanish brought the slaves to this area. The the honkies didn't. I don't know. Look, I, I just don't understand why we have to
5: hate ourselves the way we do. Why do we do that? Well, I think, there, I think there are two different things there. First of all, I, I don't know how many first world countries in Brazil you know, still have slavery. But yeah, the USA, greatest country in the world. Uh, I do think that in, uh, the reason I was comfortable with a partisan subtitle for my book, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, is mm-hmm. that I think there's a very conscious attempt to sell this narrative to regular Americans. So one of the lines I always use when I debate or when I do a TV appearance is, in the USA, the demand for bigots greatly exceeds the supply. Um if you actually <laughs> if you actually one. ask people would you would you thanks if you actually ask people would you date someone attractive of another race would you object to having normal middle class neighbors that happen to be Mexican American less than 1 in 10 uh, whites less than 1 in 7 blacks or Asians test as a racist but the idea that there is massive racial conflict in the USA if you look at it is really the justifier for a huge chunk of society whether that's affirmative action programs, which have been in place since 1967, minority set-asides, some of the things the alt-right claims on the white side of the fence, but I think most prominently the budgets for these very massive activist groups. So um, researching the book, I found out that the Southern Poverty Law Center's endowment, not their budget, just the amount that they specifically invest in the market that they have and hold, is uh, $432 million dollars. Uh, I teach at a Ooh. state university and they have more money than my college. And that is <laughs> one of a group of organizations ranging from the old school quote unquote civil rights groups Al Sharpton's National Action Network, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, kind of doing the greatest hits here, but newer groups yeah. Antifa, yeah. Occupy, Black Lives Matter, large friends groups Nation of Islam. What unifies all these groups and gets their leaders very much paid is the idea that the old wars never ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, In reality, I would agree with you that the old wars are over. I mean, when you say a lot of this happened 100 years ago, the USA desegregated around the time we beat Hitler, uh, 1945-46 and 1954 for Brown v. Board of Education. So, yeah, I think that the reality most people perceive when they watch a baseball game that everyone seems to be sort of out there together, that's pretty close to reality. There are a few things we have to work on, but the idea that there's a massive conflict is something that's being promoted by people that have a financial incentive in that And I think I demonstrate that in the book hate crime hoax No I think you do absolutely
0: but aren't you up against I mean okay so no matter how many statistics you have proving that the mainstream media narrative is wrong people still believe what they say and they'll they'll wrestle you to you know to down to the mat to prove that it, it's right so what do you do?
5: Well, I mean, you, know, you can make some jokes like I actually was a wrestler in the past. I mean, fight, I guess. But um, <laughs> more seriously, I, I do think there's an old line from Sammy Clemens, Mark Twain, um, where he said it's very tough to fight people that buy ink by the barrel. And he was referring to a lawsuit he was involved in with a newspaper. But I, I do think the media still has that power today. Um, So things that are absolutely not reality, like in 2015, the year Black Lives Matter began, the total number of unarmed African-Americans that were shot by police officers was 17. This, frankly, wasn't a story. Every single one of those cases was made into national news for political reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. It's worth noting, by the way, that there were more than a thousand people in total shot by cops. Uh, Seventy-eight percent of them were white or whites or Caucasian Hispanics, and all those cases simply did not appear in the narrative. That's how a narrative is created. But I also think that a lot of people suspect that this isn't real. Uh, If you just look at the comment sections under any mainstream news story, you look at social media. I I think you guys in talk radio have done a good job at this. I mean, I think most Americans realize that a lot of things they're told, the countries at war, racial conflict is everywhere for that matter sharks are attacking people are just bs so when i published the book the reaction was overwhelmingly positive um oh, that's good i mean i teach yeah i teach at a primarily black institution actually but it's a fairly conservative right. southern school And the reaction from most of our executives here was like, well, yeah, I mean, I suspected that was true. The the people involved in these cases don't seem to be – the phrase I often heard was brothers with jobs. They seem to be white kids with feathers in their hair. Like, we've been very skeptical of a lot of these cases. So I think that there's – people are massively receptive to the idea that what corporate media tells them is not true. And I think now with less traditional media, you're seeing more people go around that. For that matter, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders communicate with their fan bases primarily by Twitter.
2: Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, they absolutely do. Uh, Wilfred, I will tell you something. I I was uh, a very young teen boy when Martin Luther King Jr. said, do not judge people by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. It struck home with me. It's my favorite saying of all time. I admired the hell out of Martin Luther King Jr. He's been one of my heroes, and that never comes up anymore. Nobody, not white people, not black people, nobody references Martin Luther King making that brilliant statement Because there's no money in it, I guess.
5: Well, I think that uh, white conservatives sometimes do. Um, I've heard that a fair amount from coaches when I was involved in athletics or from people in the business world. I I, I do think that I guess black conservatives as well. I mean, Tom Soule idolizes Martin Luther King. I do think that. On the activist left, again, because the justification for social programs that tend to benefit the activist left is the old wars never ended, if I could put that in a sentence. I do think you've seen a very strong attempt to redefine some of these ideas, like what racism is. So, I mean, if you ask the ordinary person on the street what is racism, they would say, well, I guess that's hating someone of a different race. And that's pretty close to the technical definition, which is dislike based on the belief that another race is inferior. If you talk to an activist today, that's not what they mean by racism. What they mean is these sort of vague ideas like white privilege, which is the concept that by virtue of being white, you can't measure it, but you have some kind of advantage that I don't. Um, I've never really seen that lower any of my white buddies' bills checking out of a store or anything, but the idea is that it's there. You can't identify it, but white need to be aware of it. Uh, there's cultural appropriation, which is the idea that, for example, as an upper-middle-class black guy, because I do Asian martial arts, I'm stealing something from another group of people. Right. Um, there's the idea of subtle prejudice, institutional prejudice. So if you're talking to someone about these issues of race, especially on the left, they don't generally mean – that they're targeting those who hate members of other racial groups. And I think that's because so few people openly do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that will, will So I, basically thank Basically, to, God an, for that, to the answer way. the question... Yeah, oh yeah, t- completely thank God for that. But I think to answer your question, because there's a bit of a ramble there at the end for me, that's why Dr. No, King no, isn't like referenced it. as much. The, the ancient enemy he fought is, to some large extent, gone.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I still... I, When a guy gives it, he knew he was going to get assassinated. He talked about it quite often, actually, toward the end of his life. And to ignore him now, yeah, uh, during his birthday and a couple other times, you know, April 4th, obviously, coming up in two weeks, he'll be brought up because uh, April 4th. uh, And even at at that, uh, you two got the time of the day wrong. They said early morning, April 4th, and that's not when it happened. But You know, put the song out anyway. But I just, why you don't use that thing? Do not judge me by the color of my skin, the content of my character. So in other words, I don't care what what color your skin is. If you're a jerk, you're a jerk and I want nothing to do with you. And if you're a good person, I really enjoy that. What's wrong with that?
5: Well, I don't don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that the reason that Dr. King's idea of color blindness is less often referenced these days is that to some extent it's been achieved. So people that are racial activists today aren't fighting for colorblindness because we already mostly have that. I mean, if you look at American history, uh, desegregation, although restrictive covenants and so on persisted a bit beyond this, but desegregation took place in 1954. Uh, The Civil Rights Act, which made racism criminally and civilly illegal. If you feel you're discriminated against, you don't need to pick up a sign. You can go down to court, file a serious lawsuit. That was 1965. Uh, Pro-minority affirmative action which did not hurt me when I was applying to law school. I mean, that's 1967. That's now 52 years ago, you know, a human lifetime. Mm-hmm. So the basic idea that you should not, whether you're a white man or a black man, be an open racial bigot, that's been achieved. That's the reason Dr. King has venerated. Um, but in general today, when people say, well, I'm an activist, what I'm fighting for is racial equality, what, they don't mean keeping the Civil Rights Act on the books or something like that. They mean, for example, reparations or affirmative action yeah, yeah. pretty much forever they're referring to something very different and that's why they don't cite king uh, their profit would be more malcolm x i would say
2: <laughs> well by the way at the end of his life uh malcolm x uh kind of moved toward martin luther king jr anyway and people don't seem to remember that either but he did so uh, i just want to bring something up to you well actually can you hold off for a couple minutes and can you come back for about five more minutes or do you have to go
5: no, I can come back for another segment or to keep the conversation going, yeah.
2: Yeah, because I just want to ask you a couple of questions. We'll be right back in a couple of minutes more with Wilfred Riley, right after this with the family. Tom Bernard here, and with me is the CEO of North American Banking Company, Michael Bilski. Tell me, Michael, I was reading on your website that one of your bankers has worked with a customer for more than 30 years. It's a long time for any business relationship. Is that common?
1: Not only 30 years, but two generations. Our great client, Northland Fastening Systems.
2: Never liked you, by the way. Why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience? Member FDIC, an equal housing lender.
1: Thanks, friend.
2: And you are? (laughs) Real nice. Chuck Nabla. (laughs)
1: Chuck (laughs) Nabla. Tom Bernard here for
2: Whiting Clinic LASIK and Cataract. There's no better time than now to ditch your contacts and pitch your glasses. Whiting Clinic is the place I trusted to do this for me, and it's not just me. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Wilfred Riley is with us, professor of political science, Kentucky State. Um, Dr. Riley, i got to ask you a question. When you appear on most shows, like radio shows, uh, do people just assume you're a white guy?
5: I don't know. Uh, It depends. I don't usually ask. I've, I've rarely asked the host, hey, what color do you think I am? Um, I've sometimes been introduced. At, <laughs> I've sometimes either on very liberal black shows or on far right conservative shows. I've been introduced as African American Professor Will Riley, just to give people kind of a baseline of what to expect. But uh, no, in general, I would suppose most people listening to me. I mean, a guy from Chicago named Will Riley or Will O'Reilly, they would probably think I was a white guy. Yeah. You yeah. mm, probably, um, but. I, yeah.
2: I don't I mean, know. I it might depend on it little... could
5: depend on a bunch of things.
2: Well, now, in my in my particular case, when I talk to people because of the sound of my voice, some people think I'm black, but I'm actually white. And the reason, mm-hmm. the reason I know that is because as I talk to people, some people are very, very nice to me on the phone because they think I'm
5: black. Yeah, so sure. they think they have to do that. <laughs> Isn't that weird? That's I a mean, bit it's just, strange. Uh, I mean I... – you you can get that both ways. I've definitely I've experienced on a few occasions increased hostility doing things like drinking in small Southern bars when I was in sales uh, because I was perceived as a minority guy. <laughs> right, I've also right. experienced kind of a weird over politeness yeah. with kind of the mothers of girlfriends. That's what I'm talking about. Who wouldn't say? Yep. Yeah. Who wouldn't say totally normal things like you better get her back home by ten because they felt it might oppress me. Um, so I don't know. I mean. It, it, it breaks out about evenly for me, I think. But, yeah, you my background—I'm Irish American and African American.
2: Well, see, that's good. That all works out in the end. Uh, yeah, I love the beard, by the way. You, you get away with that beard, huh? In, in, in high school, in uh, college, I mean.
5: Well. In, in professor kate i will say one thing actually um i am glad that i teach in one of the historically black colleges when you get although most small southern colleges would be about the same in terms of this but in terms of extraordinary political correctness if every one of our executives is a preppy black guy we don't have to pretend to be incredibly (laughs) woke or incredibly offended all the time so um but I think if anything, we're more conservative here, actually. That's that's something that ties into the fact that I could write the book, still get tenure, there were no problems. Um, but in terms of the beard, college professors in general are given a lot of leeway. They're not the most fashionable group on the planet. <laughs> um, my job before college, actually, I was a sales director for M. Evans, which is one of the sort of standard boiler room trading floors in Chicago's LaSalle Street District. And there, I mean, everyone had to wear a you know, suit to work every day, three-piece was preferred. So I've I still got most of my clothes, so I can, I can dress up pretty well. But I've, I've grown the beard. I've even braided it for some local TV appearances. So you never know.
2: <laughs> uh, I, you're unbelievable, I tell you. i got to ask you a question. never, never know what you're you're pretty broad-shouldered guy. You're are you as big as you look? Uh, I I just saw a, a, a bit of film on you on on with uh, Tucker Carlson. Tom you Tom look like a Tom, pretty,
3: yeah. F- breaking nose. We beat Louisville 86-76.
2: Sorry. 86. Don't look bring look it up. that up. Kentucky State. Kentucky State's close enough to Louisville, you know. Yeah, Minnesota's playing Louisville in the uh, NCAA tournament. Minnesota just beat them 86-76. Okay. So that's that's good news. Thank you. But in any case, Doctor Riley, I, I just think the whole thing is fascinating because the reason that I, I wanted to have you back for another segment, and I appreciate your time, sure, sure, is that you you don't jump out there and go, oh, "Well, I've been victimized, and I'm this, and, and and I, you know, I'm Irish or I'm black or I'm," you don't say any of those things. You just you, you take Wilfred Riley on his face. You know what I mean? It's just you are who you are, and unless you do some research, you, I, nobody would ever know you're black. Uh, or white. They would not They would have no idea. I think that's a great position to take because it really doesn't, to me, because of where I grew up in the inner city, it doesn't matter
5: to me. You know what I mean? I don't care. Yeah, I, I, I basically agree with that. I grew up in a large urban neighborhood myself. Well, this, this again gets back into a lot of these issues of quote-unquote white privilege and so on down the line. I guess my starting position would be that I don't see anyone in America in 2018 as oppressed. Um, no, I think that's a ridiculous idea. I've actually done a never military guy, but I've done uh, overseas kind of human service, like American field service. And if you go to Guatemala or you go to Senegal or some of the other places in the world you become extremely happy with what you have when you get back home to your, you know, TV yes. and outdoor hoop and refrigerator that works. <laughs> yeah. um, yep. yeah. So, but I actually, I did a study once. This is one of my conference papers. It was never one of the things I published as a big book, but I was genuinely curious. I'm a fairly good social scientist. So I asked a group of about 2000 people, a series of questions about privilege and this range from have you ever been beaten up by more than two people which in fact i have and i suspect the urban people on the other side of the mic might have as well but you you know what frequent flyer miles are but have you (laughs) have you been drunk do you know what frequent flyer miles are did you have a car in high school so i had a hundred hundred of these questions and i asked a bunch of people of all races and ethnicities and so on to take this survey to score it And I tried to measure what gives you privilege, and I found that if you take two identical guys, one white guy, one black guy, the white guy did on average score uh, about two points better, two points more privilege on the survey. But I also found that about 80 percent of privilege was just social class. Yeah. So if you were a white kid from Appalachia or from South Boston – I mean I did this online, so I had quite a pool of people – your score might be a 20. Whereas if you were a black kid from an affluent Chicago suburb, your score would be a 70. You would say, yeah, I did have a car in high school. I have had an internship. You would go through this list of things. So in general, I don't tend to think that black people as a group or Asians or Jews, certainly as a group, are dramatically more disadvantaged than white people. I think you have to judge each person as an individual. So the Irish and Italian inner city neighborhoods, for whatever reason, um, it kind of cleared out. A lot of those people moved to the south, actually. So right now, if you look at the hood in major cities, that is mostly African-American, although now uh, somewhat Hispanic as well. So if someone says, well, I'm a guy that grew up in Cabrini Green, that might well indicate, that might well be a proxy for I've had a tough life. But if you just say I'm a minority person, well, that's 30 percent of the country. That doesn't really mean much of anything. So I don't I don't yeah. tend to lead with, well, I'm brown as opposed to this is the book I wrote. What do you think of it?
2: No, I think Bang. it's a great idea. You don't even, you don't even uh, uh, on the information I got, you don't even mention you're a doctor.
5: Uh, I generally don't introduce impressive. myself to people. and Yeah, I mean, if I'm playing golf or basketball, I'm going out for a beer, I generally don't introduce myself to people as, you know, Dr. Wilfred Riley Esquire. <laughs> I've got, got, got a few titles, That, that
3: would actually. explain a, why you've been I'm, beat up by more than one person. <laughs>
5: <laughs> that like, that, that's what I do every time I meet someone. <laughs> um, I think it's wonderful. But I really do.
0: I, just, I have a question. People being it, normal it, it, and getting it, along, you mean? Or? Yeah, 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 I love it. It's do you, wonderful. Do you do speeches around the country at at, uh, at different universities and colleges?
5: It looks like I'm going to. I mean, that's that's become one of the sort of hot things for center-right speakers. Uh, ben Shapiro, Heather McDonald. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously, yeah. a lot of people have uh, taken that route. I'm probably going to start in Kentucky, and again, I don't think speaking in Kentucky, there are going to be any interesting riots or anything like that. I think the audience will mostly you know, <laughs> listen and applaud. But you, you, there definitely is an entertainment factor if you get booked in you know, Berkeley or even some of the schools I'd be asked to, Illinois, University of Illinois, Chicago. Personally, I would be very tempted just to round up a bunch of friends from either my old neighborhood or you know, local police and security forces and just Move through the crowd and give the speech. I think there's there's been a lot of respect <laughs> given to there's been a lot of respect given to the hecklers' veto on these campuses that I completely disagree with. Where you know there'll be a chanting crowd surrounding the place where the speaker's supposed yep. to talk and so on. And it strikes me right. that either the speaker's friends or the cops could really disperse that group of twenty pretty easily. But uh, I mean, obviously, there's some legal restrictions on doing that. You want to run that by an attorney first. But I do hope to do a do hope to do a little a mini college tour.
0: Because I just would think that, like, if you tried to go talk at the University of Minnesota, for instance, about your book, I think there'd be just I I, I think they'd freak out. I don't oh, even God, know. Yes. They oh, would yeah. just flip out because you're you're not agreeing with the narrative, and it's just it. Really? it, it it's hard for them to just grasp that there can oh, oh God, Minnesota's yeah, way that there the might map. be another way of looking at things. It's just not possible, I don't think
6: Minnesota's interesting in that our cities are as liberal as you can get in the United States, whereas the oh, country is basically as conservative as you can get in the United States, so yeah, it's true it, interesting. it really depends on where you go
2: it's a It's a different kind uh, of deal, I'll tell you that.
5: I think that's a split. Actually, that's one of the reasons that the country has become so polarized, I think. If you want to talk practically and move away from black, white, or regional Mm -hmm. affiliations or something like that, in almost every state, what you've seen is a movement of people into the inner suburbs around big cities or away from the city altogether into the country. So in Illinois, I mean, our population is, uh, I think, 12 to 14 million, but about almost exactly 7 million of that is in Chicago and the surrounding collar counties, which, again, are deep blue, uh, liberal to radical. The other 7 million live, in many cases, as far away from Chicago as possible. One of our population centers is deep southern Illinois, and that is bright red, very conservative. There aren't necessarily huge racial differences between these areas, but there are huge political differences. And I think that Mm -hmm. combined with social media contributes to a lot of people rarely seeing someone they really disagree with and having to have a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. So that's problematic. I mean that's the – go on.
2: Oh, yeah, yes, sir, thanks. Uh, I I just think it's it's terrific. I think you, as you go along, how how long ago did you put out Hate Crime Hoax? How how long has it been out?
5: Uh, About a month. I've been, I'm very glad to be on the show, but I've been doing a fair amount of bluntly media plugging of the book. Uh, The book dropped with Regnery Mm -hmm. uh, February 26th. And I had, yeah, you know, you never want to cheer another man's misfortune, but I had the remarkable luck of having the Jussie Smollett case collapse uh, the day before (laughs) the book came out.
3: Uh, oh, and here, and I, here, I, I, I just thought you were a fast writer
5: <laughs> I actually planned the whole thing You're not Nigerian You don't sound <laughs> <have No>. Nigerian
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do but, I mean it, I've it,
5: actually it, gotten uh, Go on, sorry Okay, no, I've uh, actually answer. gotten Um I've gotten that question kind of a lot. Like, were you responsible for the uh, Jussie Smollett attack? Uh, I'm actually, as I've mentioned, I'm from Chicago. Uh, people joke about my old neighborhood having uh, sort of urban mob affiliations, although it doesn't anymore. Um, I wrote a book on this topic. I, When I was a trader, I lived very near to where Smollett was attacked, which is sort of the young professional area in Chicago, Spreederville South. And when yeah. the Jussie Smollett thing happened and then it collapsed, I got at least 50 or 60 joking emails like, were you responsible for this? I just bought your book. Did you write this before <laughs> the Jussie Smollett case happened? And the, the answer is yes, because this has been happening for years. I mean, this goes back to Tawana Brawley. But it, it was a yeah, bit of a launching yeah. pad. I mean, I've done a, done a bunch of shows, I was able to get on Tucker Carlson on Fox. We almost booked yeah, Bill Maher, yeah. but uh, apparently they said no.
2: Bill, well, yeah, Bill, you know, Bill knows more about black people than you do, apparently.
0: Just ask him.
5: Yeah, Bill, stay, <laughs> Bill stays woke. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He stays Bill Maher, woke, actually, Wilfred. is one of those he's kind of one of those woke white guys. Like I remember he referred to himself as a quote unquote house in word yeah. stick with the national yes, protocol of, you know, never saying the hated thing, but because he only voted for Democrats or something like that. So, I mean, you run into that a lot in urban culture. Uh, very often you'll encounter large yeah. groups of white liberals who think that the way to help working class black communities is to do crazy stuff. Um, there's a, there's a, a argument in Chicago right now about whether it's racist to demand ID to vote and do other things. Yeah. Oh, and God. most of the people arguing that black people can't manage to get a driver's license happen to be white guys. I don't know a single <laughs> black or Asian guy in the business world that doesn't have, I mean, an identification of some kind, a fishing license. Like, mean, come on. So it's uh, there's a lot of that. I think Mars part of that. But at any rate, it would have been interesting to get the booking that that never happened, but uh, Tucker did. Yeah. And hopefully that will continue yeah. for a while. So the book's only been out for a month.
2: I tell you something, uh, Dr. Riley, you need to, to get on the national stage and stay on the national stage because everybody else is just terrified to talk about the things you talk about. It takes bravery. I don't care, you know, for Irish, sure. black, whatever the situation is. You're showing some fortitude mm-hmm. here and some strength, and I really appreciate it. I, like I said, when you and I first talked, you. you didn't know if I was black, and I didn't know if you were white. I had no idea. And I love the fact that I had no idea because it didn't matter. I love that. Yep.
5: You know what I mean? Yeah. So you, I do. You I need think actually, back. That, oh, I'd be very glad to come back with you. I, I enj- I've enjoyed the conversation. I enjoy. I also enjoy publicity. I am, you know, not a not a perfect <laughs> man. Very, very narcissistic. But I mean, uh, one thing in terms of that last line you hit on, I think that's a very important point. Just with us as a group of taxpayers talking. It doesn't matter. It can not matter what someone is to some extent. I mean, Miss Black America should probably be a black woman. But in Rob. terms of how valid someone's argument is, well, you never know. Uh, Rachel Dolezal once apparently entered that contest. But in terms of what someone's argument is, it's complete BS to say, well, as a black man um, – yeah. You know, as an yeah. Italian American, as as a white man with green eyes, I would even flip this to the right too, where people are discussing things like tax policy, and they say, "Well, I'm a Christian," and my, my response would be, "Me too." There are very few Hindus in my state at this time. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily affect how I feel about this financial issue as a you know former markets guy. So, whenever someone begins an argument by saying, "Well, as you know, a black evangelical green eyed man," I feel. What you should just do is scrape that language away, because it doesn't matter that you're a black, evangelical, green-eyed man. What matters is how logical what you're about to say is. If what someone says is nonsense and they happen to be a member of a minority group, there's nothing more racist you can do than patronize them by patting them on the back and saying, oh, that's so great, little brother. And I think a lot of people, especially on the left, do that.
0: Oh, they sure do.
2: You gotta come back all the time. I, wait, you might have to come a permanent member of this show because nobody has this, the, the the courage you have. I love your courage. Did that come from your mother and father? Who'd that come from?
5: I mean, uh, probably genetically. Um, I don't know. I don't actually feel. I will say, and obviously, you know, like I said, the the show is great. It's, I'm enjoying the conversation, but I don't know that. Friendly banter aside, I don't know that I'm especially brave. I think that we've entered a weird place where the Overton window has moved to the point where you can't say anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's that's not just bluntly if you're a white guy. I mean, as a black guy, I have a little luxury to talk about race. But, I mean, there are a lot of things, like the question of how many sexes there are, that would strike most people as just really commonsensical questions that you're not supposed to discuss at all. Uh, Basically, I will say, I mean, I made a decent amount of money in my job before I uh, came to KSU, and land is cheap around here, so I'm not really all that worried. Um, Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I think that's it. I don't think there's any remarkable courage to saying things that most people agree with when you're in a relatively secure position, but I'm definitely going to use that luxury. It's very irritating to see the emperor walking around with no clothes on. So... Mm If people say things that are obvious nonsense, if possible, and I'm in a fairly stable position. I mean, you know how tenure works, presumably. If possible, if someone says something that's crazy and you can countermand that, I think as a citizen you generally should. So I'm trying to.
2: You're a good man, Dr. Wilfred Riley. The book is called Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Yeah, I want to I want to stay in touch with you. I also do a morning talk show on the radio in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and I'd love to have you on that show because you, uh, man, you, we need you. I'm just telling you, we need you.
5: Okay. Yeah, anytime you get us in anything the like world. that. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, you guys, uh, you both you and your booker, I think, have my personal sell. So, yeah, any time there's an interest, just uh, just give me a call. We'll have a conversation and then see if I can uh, I can make that date.
2: Yeah, and then, you know, sell some books would be good, too, even though, you know, you made a lot of dough <laughs> and you're sitting around in your cheap land. It would be a good thing, man. I, I, I really appreciate your time. I don't have, I don't have a cheap land I, yet. Oh, well, you don't? Okay, well, it's right around the corner. <laughs> well, you, you'll get that taken care of. Dr. Riley, thanks for your time, and we'll talk soon, sir. Thank you for yours. Thanks a lot. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we can move this part four minutes back, right? Yep. The introduction, all that, then a break, and everything. So we have about eleven minutes here. Is that cor- correct, Cassie? Yep. I absolutely love that conversation because he didn't jump in and tell us he was a doctor. He didn't mention his race. He didn't mention anything. Uh, just the the uh, the title of his book. I'm sure stirs the pot mm-hmm. enough for most people. Wilfred Riley is a very impressive person because he didn't he didn't use any crutches. He didn't go, Well, yeah, I, I, let me qualify that. He didn't do any of that. He just said, This is what I think. I I really, really enjoyed that well, a lot. I really just, did.
0: It was just fascinating to me because I mean it- uh, you've everybody's seen these news stories where there's people that are just like they're murdering us in the streets they think that they're if you walk I down the street yeah. if you're a particular color that you're just going to be shot by cops and that's all the cops want to do and that's all the cops do you know, and and they just keep you know. perpetuating this and you know it's scary to say if you say that you don't believe that that's something that happens then you're you know you're mm-hmm. a racist or you're you're or you're stupid, or whatever. You know, I, I, you know what I like? It takes a lot Sorry. of courage to come out and say stuff that he's saying.
2: It does, I think so. Yeah.
3: My favorite part is that Tom likes a college professor.
0: I know.
2: <laughs> Isn't that amazing? He's a college <laughs> professor, and I really like the guy. What does that tell you? Uh, I, I do. I just love the fact that he just lays it out there and says, "Hey, you know," because the the this whole you know hate crime hate everybody, you know, the race, hatred and all that stuff. There is far too much money to be made. There are far too many votes to be gotten. What we're doing, and I, I, I the next conversation I have with Dr. Riley, I would like to ask him, um, this whole thing, all of this is aimed at people with a very low IQ, I would assume. And most people cannot think beyond the level of a of a 12-year-old, so... Is that who they're going after, you think? And look, that's not a negative statement, that's just a fact.
0: Well, Doug, you're a marketing person. If you tell well, somebody I what know. how many times is it there's some sort of Oh magic yeah, number. there's
3: some what, rule that it has to be seven times yeah, before if, it sticks in your, yeah. in before, your cranium. Yeah, and
0: right. And if you look at the news, oh, I God. mean in one day you'll probably get the message that they're trying to put across about a thousand times. Mm-hmm. You know what so I oh, Yeah.
3: yeah. I, I know you guys hate him and probably with with Just Cause, but if you ever watch Bowling for Columbine all the way through to the end, it was like Rod, uh, mm-hmm. Michael Moore's second most famous movie behind Roger and right. Me. What right. he does is, it's really interesting, he goes into Canada and he compares the demographics and all the sort of stuff of Canada versus the U.S. And it turns out Canada is actually more racially diverse than the U.S. It's about the same amount of gun ownership, blah, 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 blah. All these statistics that we think leads to uh, you know a high gun uh, death rate in the country, and it turns out they're about the same. Although they have far less crime, and Michael Moore of all people, guess who he blames for it? The media. He blames. Does he really? Yep, the media I'm and fear mongering. That. That, that's how he wraps up the movie. It's actually pretty interesting. I mean, it's I very like it. slanted, and it's got that classic Michael Moore interview technique where he just sticks a microphone in somebody's face and doesn't say anything and the person just falls all over themselves and looks like an idiot. I mean, that's in there. But the conclusions that he drew at the end of that movie, I was surprised that it came from him and it also makes a lot of sense. I would, the only, where he lost
2: me was when he said, Cuba has much better health care than the United States. What? Why do you say things like that? It's idiotic.
6: It has more health care, but that doesn't mean it's better. What do you mean well, more health? Well,
0: one of Cuba's exports is doctors.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because they, they don't want to live there.
0: Well,
6: they can I make a lot Cuba more money by coming
2: place. here. Yes. Yes.
0: Well, yeah. no, no, not just here. They 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 actually they actually trade doctors.
6: Yeah, to Cuba's other countries. Yeah, per do, capita yeah. the most doctors in the world. Is that right? I didn't know. Yeah. That. Yep. Per capita, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah uh, that capita. was shocking to me hmm. too. But I mean, I think that their education system is is good it's just the problem is that if you if you go off topic even a tiny mm-hmm. bit god only knows what'll happen to you well you they, could, they could use some
3: industry and some money to that's good. the biggest thing
2: yes problem. they, they could.
0: certainly could
3: they could I, I i want to read
2: a story that Catherine pointed out to me here and it's just uh, you know how they always put tag words up that if you, if you're looking for this story you you look you, can, you know use these tag words you could probably find it mm-hmm. right let me read this to you Uh, You get to, you know, start at the A's, you know, A, B, so it's abortion. Then there's Alliance Defending Freedom and, you know, move on. You get down to T's and it says transgender, transgenderism, Trump. <laughs> I
3: was like, what? Sounds
2: about right. Yeah.
3: It's kind of casting a wide net,
2: right there, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah. a really wide net, isn't it? But yeah, I, I was very impressed with him. I, I I really wish that people wouldn't sell hate. I know you make a lot of money selling hatred, but I really wish you wouldn't do that and find a decent job.
0: Well, and that's why having conversations with people like him are so important because people have to start having conversations yeah. and people have to yep. start demanding that these news outlets stop. So doing if what you th- doing. I
3: think you're exactly right, Catherine. And if you think about what Michael Moore is saying, it's really the same thing. So, you know, mass media suffers from the Internet just like every other business. There's so much uh, out there that they need to get the listener's attention or the viewer's attention in order to sell advertising so they can make it a viable business. Unfortunately, right. because it's so noisy out there, the only way they can attract our attention is by you know, writing up these super sensational stories. That's my theory. I, get, I well, guarantee you being in the business. Oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: No,
0: I, I know a lot, a lot of people that, that would have said, I don't watch the news anymore. No, I just stop watching it, or I watch it once a week. I used to watch it every night, and it was just too irritating. I can't do it. I just don't watch the news anymore. And not, not so much local news, because local news doesn't delve into it nearly as much as the national news does. But national news... Um, viewership is down.
2: It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't. I, it doesn't surprise me that it is down either. Uh, who can stand it? Honest to God, it's like, really? Would you calm down, well, and all not, of you?
0: Yeah. It's not like you have to be intelligent to see the no. fear mongering going on on these stations.
2: All right. Here's the uh, story that Catherine pointed out to me. I just want to run this down. And uh, but, but I, seriously, thanks again to Dr. Wilfred Riley. What a hell of a guest. I guarantee you. That he's going to go on a talk show, maybe probably on Doug's favorite station, MPR. Yeah, and I NPR, love the fact that
3: say. the... Uh, um, I know, the, that woman thought. <laughs> yeah, the, the, this <laughs> was public radio. Yeah.
2: And I didn't even talk like this. So, Stephanie, what actually happened with your husband? I believe it was Egypt. Maybe.
0: Maybe she <laughs> told her uh, told her agent that she only wanted to be on <laughs> public radio <laughs> Here she yeah, accidentally she got on our show.
2: She, she was terrific. I, I thought she was wonderful. I guarantee you that eventually a radio host will call him a racist because oh, they yeah. don't know he's black. I'm sure. I guarantee it'll happen. Guaranteed.
0: Oh, that's happened before. It's happened before on news Oh, oh
2: absolutely. just yeah. happened to a guy, a guy. I can't remember the guy's name. Yeah. Uh, but, he, but she said, well, you know, you have white privilege. And he goes... I'm I'm sorry, but I'm black. Yeah,
0: that was a great story. (laughs) I remember that. That was a great story,
2: wasn't it? As she accused him of having white privilege because she was black, but she didn't know he was too. Uh, A a lawsuit has been filed against a recently signed California law that inflicts fines and or jail time. Okay, you ready? Fines and or jail time on employees who misgender a patient with a senior care facility. Mm. Do you even know what that means? Yes. No. What does it mean to misgender someone?
0: It means if I am if I am a woman and I've transitioned to a man. Yeah. You if you call me, she. Yeah. That that's misgendering.
2: But how would you not? What do I got to check your crotch every time I talk to somebody new? Now. I'm guessing the I mean, answer it is no. That makes no sense
0: to me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> you hope so. I, I just Jude, stop that. Jude has lost his mind. He thinks it's time to go, and I guess he's probably right. But no, I, 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 because I don't know your gender, should I just go? Well, what should I say then?
0: I just don't think you s- use she or he.
2: What do you use instead?
0: Hey, you. Hey, you.
6: <laughs> <laughs> How are you feeling?
2: <laughs> I was introduced. How are we by...
0: today? The royal we. Uh,
2: inter- oh no, no, no! This can't be a true story. I'm sorry. This is going to, oh, people are going to get pissed off at me for this. I did not invent this. This is a real story from CaliforniaFamily.org. Good news law penalizing misgendering with hefty fine. Uh, you know who introduced the bill? Now, this is a misgendering problem. Hmm. You Arnold some, Schwarzenegger? You ready? Uh, nope. State okay. Senator Scott Weiner. Mm. <laughs> Why did it have to be Scott Weiner?
3: So there's two? <laughs> I wonder if he's related. I know. I wonder if he is related. <laughs>
2: I'm like, what? He's a Democrat from San Francisco. Of course. He sponsored uh, by uh, Equality California. It penalizes senior health care workers who misgender any patients identified as transgender. But how would you know they're identifying as transgender? How would you
0: know that? Maybe you have to do that on intake forms now. Oh, well, Jesus. <laughs> sure. I,
2: so I have to know everything about you, even though I just met you. That makes no sense to me. How would I? I really highly doubt that anyone would do that on purpose. Anyway, would they?
0: Well, like when um, Alex's friend transitioned. Yeah. I had known him as a male mm-hmm. for twenty some odd years. Right. So after he transitioned, I st- see he.
2: Well, he did transition. I know, but
0: still, that could be offensive.
2: No, he trans—he he transitioned. Tom, I'm sure,
3: I'm sure in the past you've misgendered people before. In fact, I, I would bet a million dollars on it. Misgender? What do you mean misgendered? By calling somebody by the wrong gender. You think so? How many times have you played golf and turned to one of your friends who missed a one-foot putt and says, does your husband play golf?
2: <laughs> oh, well, yes, yeah, see, there you go. Wap I get a million bucks. Men can marry men now. I'm out of here. Men can marry men now, so that's not misgendering, pal.
3: Oh, jeez.
2: Darn it. That's twice today. <laughs> As twice you just can't twice. win. I know. It's <laughs> no, not my, I, I, it's not well. my year.
0: <clears throat>
1: I know three
2: people that have transitioned. All three of them were men to women. Do I, do I care? No. Does it make them happy? I'm happy for them. If yeah. it makes you happy, I'm but, happy for you.
0: But it also makes sense that since you've known somebody for many, many years as one gender, that you might accidentally say he.
2: I still call Lauren Cliff once in a while because I'm so used to 35 exactly. years of calling him Cliff. And,
0: it, and it's not like an intentional no, disrespect. Not at
2: all. Although I do disrespect Lauren and Cliff, both sides. <laughs> I just want to throw that all out right. there. But Tom here from my friends at Walzer Automotive Group with some exciting news. Walzer's rolling out Walzer Care on new and most used cars they sell in Minnesota. Well, Walzer Care is a powertrain warranty with coverage for 10 years or 150,000 miles. Here's another pack of low-grade morons who
6: ought to be locked into portable toilets and set on fire. (laughs) These people with bumper stickers that say, we are the proud parents of an honor student at the Franklin School. or the Midvale Academy, or whatever other innocent-sounding name has been assigned to the Indoctrination Center, where their child has been sent to be stripped of his individuality and turned into an obedient, soul-dead, conformist member of the American consumer culture.
2: <laughs> yeah. Honest to God. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our very special guest, Ian Punnett. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you for having me again. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you on. I just, uh, I've just i been doing a lot of reading Uh, about you and you know I I I don't you and I didn't talk about people say tinnitus and tinnitus I I think it's it's tinnitus isn't it
4: (laughs) I say I it's you know doctors pronounce it tinnitus they do yes but I but um tinnitus is also an acceptable pronunciation and to me that's actually more accurate because tonight it's us. Every night it's me and the tinnitus, yeah. and that's how I look at it. So. And
2: me as well. As a matter of fact, by coincidence, <laughs> and uh, on I believe Tuesday's show, might have been Monday's show, Andy, my son, talked about again totally by coincidence. He talked about the fact that he keeps his headphone volume very low during the show, and I was <laughs> the bad example of the re- The reason he did that because. I have uh, a different tone in each ear. Uh, Oh, that's correct. Oh, God, I tell you, Ian, I have one tone in my left ear and one tone in my right ear. First of all, I've been in radio now for 48 years. I was in a rock band before that and listened to uh, to a number of things. But wearing headphones, is that what caused your tinnitus, you think, is wearing headphones for so
4: many years? Yeah, so there's a genetic component. That like oh, alcoholism, is. maybe, yeah. So, like, how <laughs> oh, that's th- nice, seriously. Like, how some people can have one drink and they're like, Oh my god, where have you been my entire life? Right? Mm-hmm. And they're it's like their whole body metabolism changes <laughs> after sampling alcohol or a drug, and other people take it and went, eh. And so, whether that's uh, something that's a, a physical, biophysical, or whether that's entirely you know, mental, I don't, I don't know, but I know that there's a propensity that some people have genetically to develop, um, tinnitus and other people don't. And they can have the exact same circumstances. They could be in radio with headphones as long as us both and never develop it. God, that is so, so where amazing. do you go with that?
6: I developed it long before I ever wore headphones.
2: Oh, you
4: did develop it? So you know, yeah. this was
6: probably six, seven years ago. And the doctors basically just said, well, you have crap luck too bad. <laughs>
4: Right. It can happen from an injury just as much as anything, right? So tinnitus, the way to look at tinnitus is just, it's dead. It's just dead nerve cells in your ear. And everybody loses nerve cells. Everybody gets older, you know, nerve cells die. But for some reason, some people's brains decide to go rogue. And they decide to keep sending those dead nerve cells messages saying, Hey, where are you? Haven't heard from you for a while. You got anything to say? Got anything to report? And that's tinnitus. It's the sound it that the brain makes. They think trying to connect to those dead nerve cells.
2: Does that mean I'm schizophrenic because the
4: tones are different? Yeah. <laughs> well, isn't that, I mean, it's sort of like a. It's like a submarine ping. Yeah. And like it, it goes out and it comes back, and that's how you sonically. So the brain is just sending a message to those dead nerve cells. Some people their brains don't make a noise out of it and other people's brains make a big damn deal out of it, you know? Yeah, it's
2: true. It's, it's with me all the time. One thing I really like about it to tell you the truth though, Ian, is the fact that sometimes when I don't want to hear what people are saying, it really helps.
4: (laughs) That's true. And there's a weird time. I don't know if you ever go through this guys, but I know sometimes I sit back and I kind of marvel at it. I'm like, Man, that's a loud noise. That is really... Because like, yeah. I, I train myself, for the most part, I don't hear it. So sometimes when I do, I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of impressed.
2: I think it's, it's exactly it, because most of the time, I don't even hear it. Even yeah. though it's doing it, I don't hear it.
6: If you don't think about it, it's just kind yeah. of you know not really there. Although If I focus well, really hard, I can make it go away. But as soon as I stop focusing, it comes back. I don't know what that is.
4: Well, that's actually the the only known non-surgical therapy is called TRT, tinnitus retraining therapy, and that's essentially what that is. Unfortunately, the louder and the more persistent the tinnitus, the more difficult it is to achieve TRT, which is why, and I think you all agree with me, the first rule of tinnitus club is don't talk about tinnitus club right? Because yeah. the more you talk yeah. about it, the more you think about it. Too. So I almost never talk about it unless somebody brings it up. Well, I'm
2: really glad I brought it up for you then to make you miserable <laughs> today, Ian. That's fantastic.
4: <laughs> but it's true. I mean, but I think if other people that have it, sometimes it's good to just sort of like form a little circle, you know, and just kind of talk about it for a minute because it's there and it's real. It is, And it, it's. I have the disruptive kind. I have the kind that If I were standing next to a waterfall, it would still be the loudest noise I hear.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably true. How old were you when you when you went uh, came to St. Paul?
4: Yes. So, good question. So, I think uh, 2001. So, I was 41.
2: So, you're Did you live in Illinois the full time before? Because you were born in. No, no,
4: no, 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 no. no. I came. So, I came to the Twin Cities. Living in, I was in Atlanta. And I had already gotten hooked up with Hubbard Broadcasting and KSTP when oh, I, I lived okay. in Atlanta. Okay. Right. And I used to do the show from Atlanta. I took over for Tommy Mischke for a while when right. he had a bout of depression. So I, I did the show off and on for a couple of years before I finally moved up there. But I mean,
2: you did you did grow up in Illinois, though, didn't you?
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. You know where the Home Alone house is? Yes. So you know about the Home Alone. I, I grew up down, like blocks from, from the Home Alone house. Is that Wanetka? Yeah. Exactly.
3: Yeah,
2: I thought, yes, yeah, a, that's a so beautiful met, area. Yeah, it's nice.
4: It was Mayberry
2: with money. Yeah, Mayberry with a lot of money, it's true. I yeah, I think you and I talked about that before. I I, used to, yeah. I spent a ton of time in Chicago doing voiceover, and I would kind of wander around the area because back, I, you know, I, when I first started I was 25 years old, Twenty, yeah, 25 years old. I wasn't married, I had, so I would literally go to Cubs games or I would go wander yeah. around places like uh, Winnetka and just – it, sure. I love Chicago. First of all, I just love that town. I, it's a great city. It is. So that's, that's why
4: I love. That's why I love St. Paul. Yep. When I moved to yep. the Twin Cities, it was like, where am I? Am I going to be a St. Paul guy, or am I going to be a Minneapolis guy? Right? Because you know, you're going to have to make a choice somewhere in there.
3: So right, let's not right. forget, you know, well, St. Paul's a neighborhood read, I, of Minneapolis.
2: Yeah, that's right. It was listed. At, yeah.
3: Was, where was so that I listed heard. again? That moron. What was that? That was CNN oh, Travel.
4: CNN Travel Super
2: called St. Paul a Neighborhood in Minneapolis.
4: <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> pretty funny. I, I remember retweeting that. So, yeah, so but I think St. So, Paul to me is like Chicago in 1965.
2: Yeah. I No, I can see that. I absolutely can see that. And By the way, Ian, we, we might have to band together because I, I know that the uh, – that O'Gara family's talking about tearing down the bar and building a, uh, uh, a high rise there, a luxury ah. high rise, and then put a smaller version of O'Gara's in there. But the problem with that is, oh. Charles Schultz lived in the apartment above O'Gara's when he was a kid, and Vince Flint attended bar at O'Gara's when he was writing term limits. So oh, yeah. you can't tear all that down. You got to. I, I said, Danny, you gotta yeah. save parts of it at least.
4: Right, right. Do you know where the, um, do they still have the the uh, barber chair from his father? From his dad, at yeah.
2: I think so. You know, I haven't been in in a well, while, but I think they do because his father was a barber there, yeah.
4: That's where the barbershop was. Yep. And I think they kept the chair there when they expanded into that space. Well, you know, like over, is it patina that's on the corner of Snelling and like kitty corner mm-hmm. to O'Gara's? Is I think that, that's
2: correct, yes. Is that patina? Mm-hmm.
4: So above that is where Schultz's mother died. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, They moved, so in adulthood, they moved to, and check me on this, but I read the Charles M. Schultz biography, and it was pretty detailed on addresses. They lived in an apartment above Patina, um, which is still there, and that was where when she was dying of breast cancer, he was allowed to come back from Fort Snelling, which is, I think, where he was doing some, at the time he was in the Army and he was doing whatever basic stuff. And he came to her, and one of the last conversations they ever had was she said she wanted to live, and survived this, and if she did, she was going to get a dog and name him Snoopy. Aww. And that's where the name came from. That's a wonderful story. See, I love those stories. Isn't great? I mean, great St. Paul stories. It is a great story. House, the house he lived in as a kid was closer to where uh, Cretan Durham is. So, yeah, I think they just sold it,
2: as a matter of fact. Did I, they? I think, yeah, because yeah. that house had to be worth quite a bit of money because I believe that Charles Schultz painted the children's rooms with characters. I mean, oh. he hand-painted them, and they're still there, so I assume that's got to be worth a, p- a good, pretty good amount of money, right. I would
4: think. Well, and I was thinking about his childhood home. So, like, he lived... Right. I, you know, damn, I've been gone for so long, now, I can't remember the name of the streets, but uh, Snelling, whatever Snelling... There's a Walgreens on Snelling near that... Um, it used to be the Irish shop. I can't remember what it's no, it was. Randolph. Like
6: Snelling a- and Randolph.
4: Randolph, right. yeah. Snelling yeah, and Randolph. Right. Yeah. yeah, I
6: lived like two <laughs> blocks from there. Yep.
4: Right. So, so Sherman's house, they tore down Charles M. Schultz. Well, so Charlie Brown's friend Sherman um, was named after a real kid named Sherman who lived in a house that is now the parking lot of that Walgreens.
2: Oh, man. Unbelievable. Yeah. That is unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, first of all, I have to ask you how much time do you have today? Because I, I, I you know, I have about a million things I want to talk to you about.
4: Ah, I'm great. No, man, I cleared out the afternoon for you. Oh, yeah, I, I love talking to you. And if last time was any indication, somebody said, "Wouldn't you be free?" I said, "I had no idea." So I'm great.
2: <laughs> it all works out in the end. I, because uh, I, I, yeah, we've we've talked about so many things already so quickly. You brought up Tommy Mishke, uh, great radio yeah. personality, but. Uh, and talking about St. Paul and Minneapolis, it just reminded me of a wonderful story. Uh, Mischke was sitting around. Ron Rosenbaum was there at the time. And talking about the Good fact. Old Ron Rosenbaum. That, sure. And uh, Mischke, a St. Paul boy, all the way, through and through, 100% St. Paul boy, did not know where Wyzetta was for people outside of Minnesota. <laughs> Wyzetta is a western <laughs> suburb of Minneapolis. And Tommy Mishke had no idea how to get there.
4: That's very funny. It's just... That's very funny. <laughs> well, you know that when Mischke was on the air at night on KSTP, yep. he he broke the law. He broke the SEC regulation every night when he gave the top of the hour ID. I didn't know that. Because he always said, he, at the top of the hour, he always said, good old St. Paul and big time Minneapolis. So you'd say KSTP good old St. Paul, big time Minneapolis. And according to FCC rules, you're not allowed to put any word oh, yeah. between the call letters, right, and the station of license, the city of license.
2: For for And
4: uh, and the station looked the other way on it because they just loved how it felt and the Hubbard family resonates with the idea of good old St. Paul.
2: Yeah, well, they do. And I believe it was the Atlantic Monthly that loved it so much as well, right? Then they write an entire article about Mishke if I remember correctly?
4: Right. Yeah, that started because of the when when uh, the former governor came to be on the air with David Letterman, they talked about Mischke off the air while he was walking onto the
0: set. Oh,
3: okay.
4: And that's, that's what that, Atlanta, that in that article they talked about that that um, that Ventura that that David Letterman leaned into Ventura's ear and said, "Hey, I hear about this guy named Tommy Mischke. And Ventura made a comment back to him about Mischke, and and then they came and they sat down, and and that was part of Tommy's legend, was that Letterman was curious about Mischke, which I loved.
2: And I could see how he would be. Why do you think it is that so many people like Tommy Mischke and and many other people? Well, you did appear on national radio, uh, obviously. Um, I was offered a job in pretty much every town in America. I'm sure Tommy Mischke was offered jobs in every town in America as well. Why do you think it is that even though you're from Illinois, you've kind of stayed at home? Right.
4: Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, I think of the, I'm kind of an Upper Midwest guy yeah. in that sense. And I always and I grew up as we talked about. Hey, did I not predict that the Vikings were going to? When last time we were on, I I didn't <laughs> I give you the prediction I just read in SI or on ESPN that the Vikings were going to beat uh, the Rams. I told I was the one who told you that because I just yes. read that. Um so I'd grown up. a always a Vikings guy, um, even in Illinois. So I'd always had that identity. But yeah, you know, it's interesting. Tommy was even offered. Uh, Tommy was even offered Prairie Home Companion.
2: Right. It's an amazing story. Can you stay with us uh, for another segment? I yeah. hope.
4: Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not answering your questions very well. No, fan. you know, you answer
2: my questions perfectly because this is how I love conversations <laughs> on the radio. I don't like radio announcing. I love conversations yeah. on the radio. That's yeah, I me
4: too. But I, I'll try to be a little more disciplined in my. <laughs> no, I don't want
2: you to be. I, I like Ian Punnett the way Ian Punnett is. We'll be right back, Tom Bernard. Show. Tom Bernard here for Whiting Clinic, LASIK, and Cataract. There's no better time than now to ditch your contacts and pitch your glasses. Whiting Clinic is the place I trusted to do this for me. And it's not just me. Never liked you, by the way. Why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience? Member FDIC, an equal
1: housing lender. Thanks, friend. And you are. It's real nice. <laughs> Chuck Nabla. <laughs> Chuck <laughs> Nabla. There you go.
2: There you go. Mike Molina, nice St. Paul boy. Uh, as a matter of fact. Nope. Picking the music there, Melina. That's uh, great. You know, I'm telling you. Well, Melina lives right by Boca Chica, so I'm very uh, very jealous of that. <laughs> I love the fact that in St. Paul, when you get off the Lafayette Bridge, you can take a left onto Concord or a right onto Cesar Chavez Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> that's. I think that's wonderful. Yep, that's my neighborhood. I really do. That is your neighborhood. That's absolutely true. Ian Punnett, our special guest, ladies and gentlemen. What What year did you get into radio? Uh like
4: you i was a i was a kid you, were young I, young you know kids. i i was fourteen i think when i started for a uh, we had a high school radio station mm-hmm. there at uh and and it broadcast you know like twenty miles and i started doing it then i did it all four years in high school and then I had to pay for college um we didn't have a there was a prohibition in my family on that so I had to pay for it myself, and so I got a job in radio, and I worked radio all the way through school. That's why it took me seven years to finish undergrad.
2: Was was there a ban on theology or college?
4: No, no, no. I, my uh, my my grandmother was very wealthy. Oh, okay. uh, my father was not particularly successful, and my grandmother decided on the basis of how much she liked the kid whether or not she would fund <laughs> their college. I didn't get college. She didn't. Grandma didn't care for you. My gra- my brother got a full ride to Northwestern. <laughs> why I didn't get it dying. <laughs> why didn't
2: your grandmother like
4: you? I had long hair. She didn't care for that. Oh, um, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, there's just uh, I wasn't uh, I wasn't her kind of kid, I guess. And I really loved. I didn't, which is sad because I didn't know how much she didn't like me until later. I would have been a lot more disrespectful. Had I not yeah, well, to that's like exactly. It.
2: You wasted you wasted all your time being being nice for it all came out with exactly. no reason. Exactly. I, I, I tell you, that's one thing about radio people. I suppose television people. I, I don't know the television people the same way, but. Radio people. Right. I mean, you've talked about Tommy Mishkey and and uh, there are so many other figures like that. There are we are different, really yep. different people. There is no question yep. about that. I um, yep.
3: yeah, and its, its own just, culture.
2: It is its own culture. And and it, um, matter of fact, I talk to people often about the fact that I knew from the time I was fourteen years old, just like you, that I wanted to be a radio announcer. Uh, and I, even though I started out as a, a rock jock, you know, a night, nighttime disc jockey, because right. they're, they're not going to give a talk show to somebody who's 18 years old. It's not going to happen. So, no, uh, although they might
4: now,
2: Yeah, they might now, you're right. Now they <laughs> might actually do that. But, uh, so yeah, I started out as a rock still, jock. You
4: still not have anything to say, but they might give him the job anyway.
2: <laughs> That's a possibility. <laughs> Idiot. I, uh, I find the whole thing just pretty amazing yeah. that, that, that it's a, that people can make a living doing this, that we can sit and talk. Again, yeah. radio announcing I have no interest in. I uh, for, this, right. for this podcast, I do radio tours once in a while, and I try to avoid them because it's kind of weird that I've been yeah. in radio my entire life, but I cannot stand radio announcers. Isn't
4: that odd? No, because it's phony. Well, it is phony. Right? It's phony. And that's not what... So the attraction of radio is a degree of authenticity you still have to apply enough science to it that there's structure and it makes sense but the art of it is the lure right it's yeah, that unpainted space yeah. that's the deal totally
2: that's why we talk- that. absolutely we're talking about you know all these things whether whether i'll give you better answers i, I don't want better answers i want your <laughs> answers you know they are great answers <laughs> to me uh it's been so bad sometimes when I when I do appear on, on radio tours. And I haven't done one now in quite some time. But but they would ask me, well, what do you want me to ask you? And I would say, right. well, what's your job?
4: Yeah, exactly. It's kind Isn't of your job to figure yeah. that
2: out. I, I, you know, it's, it's weird. That's crazy. It's a bizarre and it's
4: situation. Is like, and, and there are people out there, there are radio announcers who are really good at it. And mm-hmm. I kind of admire them for it. But I could never do that. No. So, I mean, it's not like... I mean, I hear people doing the, the real straight disc jockey thing, right. which is, you know, it's very nipped and tucked, and it's like, you know, radio version of plastic surgery or something. And I get it. I just could never, ever do that. If my family's life had depended on it, we would have been living in a refrigerator box. Yeah, no,
2: I, that's exactly right. I did not know, by the way, that I, talked, I brought up theology earlier, I didn't know you're an Episcopal deacon. Yep, ordained had, in the church. I had no idea that that was true. So that that was one. That would be one indication that somebody had some money in your family because we've always referred to because I I grew up Roman Catholic and we always referred right. to the Episcopal, uh, the Episcopal Church as kind of rich Catholics.
4: Well, they were. It was Republicans at prayer was actually the, the, <laughs> one of the for a long time, and then and then if you will, the Episcopal Church kind of got religion during the Civil Rights Movement, and it was one of the first, mostly because of its scholasticism, it's a highly, like Catholicism, it's a highly scholastic religion, so a lot of fancy book learning and mm-hmm. all of that. And and um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's that was one of the reasons why it had a little turnaround, but from there, before, it was all about, I mean, people joined the Episcopal Church, if you wanted to do business, it was hell, it was like being a Rotarian, you know?
3: It,
6: mm-hmm.
4: it was just your best way to get to know the top lawyers in town and all of that, but... Th- it changed.
2: Do you think that's what it was with your grandmothers? you weren't Republican enough?
4: Ah, well, my grandmother was. You see, it wasn't just my father was Republican, and and I I cleave to a lot of things about his the, the way the, the way he viewed the world mm-hmm. to this day. And I, I'm a registered independent, Me, but my yeah. grandmother was a John Birch Society member. Oh, so it's not just Republican. <laughs> you know, she looked at Eisenhower. As subversive, so yeah. <laughs> that's, that's where the not... long hair came into it. I
2: think it's and... so funny. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful story. I had no idea.
4: Yeah. So you know that, and, and there's a there's something to be said for even you know fringe. I like fringe. Fringe is interesting, but you can't live there. <laughs> it's like, no. Pack a lunch. Go visit and get the hell out of there. After well,
2: a while. That's why I, I had so much fun. Now I haven't seen Mishki in a couple of years, but I used to right. once in a while go in and and do uh, Ron Rosenbaum's show, and Mishki would come on, and Mishki would get so upset with me because Mishki's a pretty pretty liberal guy. I mean, he uh, he's got very liberal, very liberal. He's got a, he's liberal, got, li- he's got a strong libertarian.
4: He's got a libertarian streak in there. He does, sick, yeah. I
2: think. But even when I when I would question something, just you know, to be me, looking, yeah, I, being <laughs> me is just to poke the bear. That's just how I am. It's how I've always been. I don't I don't right. know why that happened, but he would he wouldn't. I could see in his eyes that he was very very pissed off at me, but he wouldn't show it outwardly. <laughs> it was hilarious, yes. and I don't. I know,
4: could see that. It was- yeah. I, and I hope if I'm not, I couldn't tell my stepdad either. So Tommy, like the interesting thing about Tommy is you kind of can't tell exactly where he's going to land on certain things. That's Because true. he's also very much a traditionalist. And there's a driving force to that, which I appreciate. And I am too. So, and, and I think I knowing what I know of you, I think I would throw you into that category too. You appreciate traditions and some conventions are fine you just can't be married to them for the rest of your life because what the hell then right. you right. never progress you never get better you never do anything different
2: yeah we had so so much fun for for uh about a year i think it was when when i would see tommy he would come into the studios and hang out with ron then he would come on my show and then we would go see him perform uh god i think i can't remember it was it might have been at elsie's bowling lanes or I, he we saw him at these, o'gara's yeah, it's right. He was, He appeared at O'Gara's. That's exactly right. I forgot about that. But uh, man, he's a hell of a talent. He's a hell of a musician. Actually, yeah, brilliant combination. the more, I'm more
4: you keep talking about O'Gara's, the more I'm going to want a Reuben. Like I know. Oh, I'm thinking. Now.
2: I know what you're saying. How many? Uh, <laughs> so, how many books have you written
4: now? So I, I have a new book came out about three weeks ago, and um, that was the book version of my dissertation which was a way of explaining how true crime works. Why Why do we like murder stories? And how do we use real murder stories in our culture? Well, I mean, so you, it's you did Coast
2: to Go Coast. Ahead. So uh, Coast to Coast, I think a lot of people think Coast to Coast is just strictly paranormal, and that's what it is. But it's also true, yeah. true crime. I mean, that's why I loved it.
4: Yeah, it has that element to it. So it's always, you know, true, co- truly Coast to Coast is just alternative radio right and and the things we we would do topics that nobody else you know was doing but if somebody else started doing them we stopped so we were really big into like the beehives are collapsing because they were and we had all these scientists on who were talking about this great problem we were having with the lack of bees and as soon as they started running it on the cbs evening news we were done (laughs) it's like our our work here is finished we're not going to talking about. So it was true for anything, especially for unsolved crimes. And things that were, you know, historical mysteries is really where that overlap was. And things that other people had given up talking about, mm-hmm. we're, that's where we lived, you know, that was that was that was great. And I've always been interested though in particular about murder stories. Like why why are true you know murder mysteries, Sherlock Holmes stuff, that's great. But why is it that we tell stories of real murders and why do we tell them differently than we do in newspapers and what's the function of that so like serial on npr or a million of these other right. you know, podcasts that are out there like serial which are great mm-hmm. but what is what's the function what does it do why do we need them and we do and we always have had them um and so and again it goes back to the bible you know that we've always used murder as a way of explaining life to the living
2: you know it's interesting I I, I talked to the uh, uh uh what's the kid's name that does lore um Oh,
4: that guy.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not for. Yeah, I'm not. I, a kid I, well, that's what I was I, to tell you the truth, I think Laura made a huge mistake doing a TV show on on Amazon.
4: On Amazon. Cause yeah.
2: It, it took it even further down the road of well this is all BS and it's not I don't know. Right. The, kid, the kid has done well. Well, can it.
4: I circle back to something you said earlier about announcers? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm sure the guy's a great guy. And yeah. like, people are really into it. And my students, when it came on, man, I was hearing all about, oh, you got to listen to lore. What I don't like and what I object to is those, I think of them as these sort of phony folksyisms that he uses. Like, right. you see. That room was a little dark. And it's like, uh, you sound like an animatronic bear at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> Cut it out with the, you know, gather around and I'll tell you a story. You know, I, yes. I hate that stuff. And that's not, to me, that's not the cool part of campfire stories.
2: No, I, I, well, look, Rod Serling was really good at that, introducing the Twilight Zone, not true crime, but the narrative yeah. that he did was fantastic, and it was way overdone, but it needed to be way overdone for Twilight Zone, so maybe... Okay, but wait,
4: but he didn't put his thumbs through a suspender, no. you
2: know, and go... <laughs> no, he's too busy smoking I, a cigarette. And that's the part
4: the bug it's just... So he had, but Rod, that was Rod Serling. You didn't see an interview where right. Rod Serling didn't talk right. like that, right?
2: That's exactly right.
4: And he wasn't smoking. And he didn't, right? He didn't, he didn't look like he would just turn around and sock you if he didn't like what you said. He always had that look on his face. And I thought, you know, that's who he was. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I don't like about some of these podcasts is they're putting something on yes, and it's just, and I, I, again, you know, and some of it's kind of the wickiness of it all. People just aren't really doing original research. They just pull together
3: Mm
2: -hmm. cool
4: facts that they find on the internet and they really don't, you know, drill any deeper than that. And that kind of bugs.
2: And I don't know what your position is on him, but that is the one reason people look, I only ran into him one time, never spent any time with him or whatever. But Garrison Keeler drives me insane for that very reason. <laughs> Look, I grew up in North Minneapolis. Nobody right. in Anoka talks like that. I'm just telling you. Right. People in Anoka do not talk like that. So I don't know where you got that accent or that delivery. And, and maybe Garrison might even be a friend of yours.
4: I don't know. Uh, no, no, no. I, I don't know him. But, you know, it's interesting. I've always had kind of this, I've always felt like I was sorting him out. I could never quite... I understand. Like I, I know it. And so there was that performance aspect to it that I'm completely hip to. And it, there was, it just was the way he talked. And you kind of almost like want to meet his family and hear whether anybody <laughs> else in the family talks like that, too. Because <laughs> sometimes it's just that, right? It's just that's how dad talked. And the well, kids picked it up. But. Yeah, that's not
2: it. He's got a brother that... Uh... That lives in St. Paul that doesn't look anything like him. He's not the same size, doesn't talk like him. It, it's, it's, I think, you right. know, because I want to talk about tour de Theory, true crime narratives, uh, on the in the third part, if we can do the third part. But I, I just, I, I just, wanted, it you want. I agreed with that completely. And, and circling back to Mishki, that's why he's so good at what he does because it's not phony, right? It's real, yeah. that, that's how he really is.
4: Yep, yep. And I love that. Yeah, and I, I and I love the
2: fact that you value that. No, it's wonderful. We'll be right back in a couple of minutes. Ian Punnett toward a theory of true crime narratives. We'll talk more about it right after this Tom Bernard show. Tom here for Saber Plumbing Heating and Air Conditioning. Right now, Saber and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months.
6: 763-333-7337.
2: We are back, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Tom Bernard's show. Ian Punnett, our very special guest, toward a theory of true crime narratives, a textual analysis Um. Fascinating stuff to me. I, you know, we, we talked about coast to coast. We have talked about Twilight Zone. We've talked about yeah uh, deliveries, all, all the rest of it. I, um, true con- crime, fascinates me. And I, the reason it fascinates me is, and I've talked about this before. Um, I only knew a couple of them, but three of my uncles were murdered, and right. therefore it kind of it set me off. On a, I remember, thirteen years old. I was sitting at our house at 29th and, and Russell in North Minneapolis, and the princess phone on the wall. Remember they used to hang on the phone, those princess phones? Oh, yeah. And yeah,
4: that's what I love about Stranger Things. I love that princess phone on the wall. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. Right? So it rang, and my mother answered it, and she. I was just sitting there watching television, and she answered the phone and she said, what? And then she screamed and ran into the other room. And I remember she dropped the Prince's phone and it swung back and forth and back and forth for quite, uh, for a long time. And I was just watching the phone go back and forth and back and forth and nothing was coming out. I would have thought that people would have been going, hello, hello, but nothing right. came out of the phone. And finally, weird. yeah, it was re- very weird. Finally, my, uh, I went and asked my mother what's wrong, and she said, "Augie's dead." Uh, and I said, "What?" She said, "Augie's dead. Somebody killed Augie." And I, as my, this is an uncle. He's about six three, handsome guy. He had a woman, a woman that used to drive him around everywhere, but he never had a job. And I often wondered about that. How you, could, how you could have a driver and you did whatever you wanted. Very charming, very funny guy. But he never worked. And then one day what happened, uh, we found out later, we had, of course, tell my grandmother that he slipped in the tub and and that's why his head was smashed in. But uh, apparently, I don't know what happened. I don't know why it happened. They actually knew the person who did it, but he was never charged with a crime. Uh, But apparently he was taken to the top uh, over just off Loring Park, one of the right on Spruce Place there. And they threw him off the building and killed him. And therefore, I've always I've been fascinated. And my wife, actually, Catherine, brings it up all the time. She said, "You know, when your family gets together, whether it's at Thanksgiving or Christmas or whenever you guys get together, it's so weird how you talk about true crime every time you get together." Right.
4: right. But but it's well, just, it's how we sort things out. Yeah, and I think unpacking the story, and you know, like so this this new book, you know, this is not a retail book. This is. That you, if you, people go on Amazon and they look up toward a, a true crime narrative, a theory of true crime narratives, the, I think the lowest price is like sixty-three bucks or something yes. for the book. That's yes. if you bought the Kindle edition. That means zeros and ones, and you're still paying sixty-two bucks. So oh, right. I'm not expecting anybody to go out and buy it, but it is for academics, <laughs> it's for libraries, it's for textbooks, right? So, but I think that's interesting because. Well, this, this speaks to the idea that we we use that story form to understand murder, right? Because we just reading about you know, Augie Bernard died, and you know, or, or whatever his last name was, and he died at the corner of so and so and so, and he was thirty nine, and he never had a job in his life, but he sure had a lot of women driving him around. That just doesn't do it, right? It doesn't really tell the whole story in five inches in a newspaper story. And that's why we use true crime to really unpack stuff so we can figure out what really happened.
2: You know, it's amazing. Did I mention how old he was? No. Because that's a big— Shut up. That's I a, get it right? I'm not kidding you. Uh, Ian, I'm not <laughs> kidding you. My uncle, Augie, his last name is Dane, D-E-H-N, my <laughs> mother, my mother's brother.
3: Bob's
2: but yeah. it's so weird, that's a huge part of the story, because his whole life, he said, man, I cannot wait to be 40 years old. It's going to be the greatest of my uh, life. He was killed five days before his 40th birthday.
4: Oh, it up. And you oh, nailed that's it. That was, that's very cool. Very you weird. nailed it. I was just pulling that out of dinner, I promise. <laughs> I, I did not know that. Wow.
2: That's amazing.
4: But, you know, but that's kind of, so like right there, if you if we freeze that moment for a second, though, To a to proper journalism, that's immaterial. That (laughs) you know, unless somebody in the family said it and said, you know, it's really sad. It was five days before his birthday, and he was really looking forward to turning forty. Which you can use in, in proper journalism. That's a great quote. You can use that for a little color, but it doesn't really frame it in that way, except. When we really get to a chance to tell a story in a longer form, because that's the kind of detail that you go into in true crime, um, and you can you can you can really like try to explain like was it destined somehow? Did he always know right, right. that he was never going to get to forty? Was that part of you know? how I mean, there's just things like that that become part of the actual story that we lived and experienced, which end up in a narrative like true crime, which there's no other place to put it,
2: you know? No, there's no question about it. that. That whole thing changed my life forever for two other reasons very quickly. Really? He, as I said, he's about 6'3", very tall, the handsome guy, uh, two things. We were very, very poor. Now, I don't know what he did, but he never worked, and therefore he maybe had money, but it was stolen when he was killed or whatever. But, but my grandmother could not afford... A really expensive casket so they opted and I found this out uh, very quickly because you could tell uh, I said I said to my mother mom why is that casket so short and she said no never, mm. mind. never mind And I said what they bought the cheapest casket my grandmother bought the cheapest casket she could find and they literally cut his legs off at the knees and stuck him in the casket yeah. <laughs> right yeah so he's in a yeah. casket for about a five-foot tall guy and then the other yeah. thing is I don't go to funerals because oh. of his funeral because while I was standing there, I'm 13 years old, and I'm standing there watching this whole thing. I'm already creeped out by the fact that they stuffed him in this small casket, and then a woman went up and kissed him on the lips, and i went, Ooh. oh, my God. <laughs> so Yikes. See, this is, a, this is different than here. lore. It's real, and it changed yeah. my life forever. Now,
4: forehead I get,
2: right? Yeah, forehead you know, you've I, seen.
4: But there's something about lips, yeah. I've never thought. I've never. I don't. I, and I've been. You know. I, I even sadly officiated at a, a funeral a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and so I've done a lot of funerals, um, but I've never seen that. Um, that that would be that would be really odd. It's
2: creepy. You know, it was creepy.
4: Okay, it was really fun. I did a funeral once where um, this was the first funeral I ever did, and it was a guy who was salt of the earth. Super nice family. Didn't know him, but I was the low person on the clergy ladder at mm-hmm. this church where I had just started while I was going to seminary. I was doing radio full time, going to seminary in the daytime, and I was working weekends um, in my internship at the church. life. But so I was asked through this funeral, and while I was there, um, he, his family was, this was meaningful to them to talk about him honestly. And I remember when somebody, one of the family members, got up and I asked if anybody had anything to say, and they got up and they started saying, looking down at the casket, open casket, and he was being buried in his leathers, in his Harley leathers, oh. and the guy at the podium said, hey, man, remember when we took that ride out west? We got those whores. Remember that? It was the best. It's- I'm standing there. You know, I'm like 37 or whatever. I'm standing there in regalia, and I, like, freeze, because I've never done this before. And I look out at the gathered group for this guy's family in this chapel, and they're all nodding along, going, oh, yeah, the horror story. Oh, remember that? They had a great time. Those horrors were great. Unbelievable. And it brought them real value. It had real oh, yeah. meaning to that. And so I was like, okay, well, that's good. And I've always used that as a model for funerals ever since is that whatever it takes for everybody there to feel better, funerals are for the living and people are putting weed in his casket and stuff. I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know, I was so good with it.
2: Is that what true crime narrative is really all about is trying to understand people because yeah. some things they do, you just cannot believe that a human being would do that. But a true crime narrative is like, yeah, I guess people do much worse things than that. Exactly.
4: Like, have you ever seen The Keepers on, um, on Netflix? Yes. Right? The Catholic, the story that they're coming up with a season two mm-hmm. about these two women uh, trying to get to the bottom of how their beloved nun, right. this kind of cool nun that they had when they were teenage girls at this Catholic school, was murdered by the parish priest, which has never been fully solved, and they're determined to solve it. And it's a great series, but that's exactly it right there. It's like... They use language, they talk in vocabulary that's distinct to them, they they reminisce, they do whatever, but they're trying to get to a truth that the police aren't going to, you know, this thing's long over for the cops. Mm -hmm. Newspapers weren't reported. Who else is going to do it? Who else is going to do that except somebody who's going to write a true crime, or in this case, do a true crime, you know, TV doc out of it? It doesn't happen. It'll go, it'll go a story that goes untold.
2: And what drives them? What so? What drove? What drove these women justice. to do it in the first place? Justice. That's it. It's all. It was, so it's all about justice for them. Uh, so that's what I love about true crime stories. Is is yeah. some people want justice. Some people want it. Want an answer to w- what happened. And it's yeah. not about justice necessary. Necessarily, I just don't understand why this happened. Why did this
4: happen? Right.
2: I love and, that. And.
4: And this is like, you know, tapping into that part. We talked once about your anger stuff that you've been, you know, getting a hold of, yeah, right? Yeah. Right? That, this, this, is where, this is where it's righteously, I believe, channeled. If you feel umbrage over somebody getting away with something in a community, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how old it is. It could have been, thir- you know, we want to know what happened to Augie, right? And there's no reason why we can't know. And maybe now is the time when people are old enough because they're on their deathbed and they're finally going to they are finally gonna tell the truth. And somebody might finally spill the beans on something which they've been holding on to for decades. And that's what that's that, you know, like a pit bull on a roast beef. That's where you just like, got to be tenacious enough and, and maybe you'll get somewhere.
2: You know, that's part of the speculation. Why? When my family does get together, we talk about it because we don't know why he was killed. We have no idea why he right. was killed. And I think I, I don't know if I, we didn't think my mother. knew. What would happen
4: reason. if you started? If you made a podcast, I'm trying to find out.
2: You know, that'd be it. You and I could do it together.
4: I'd do it with you in a heartbeat.
2: We should do. Well, you what and I should do. Augie? We we should do a podcast. What happened to Augie? That would be. You How know, we got to talk it? about that.
4: That's a phenomenal and, idea. But that's and and we just got to find the people that know Augie. We got to look for the clues. And and the fact is. They could be diamonds right in the middle of the gravel, and since nobody's looking down, no one's picking them up.
2: Yeah, it's we all need closure, I suppose. Whether we ever get it is a different, a different thing.
4: But, but won't it just also tell you it goes back to the swinging princess phone? That was a seminal moment in your life. Oh man. God, yes!
2: I'll never. I'm. See, I can picture right? it in my head right now. I can see it swinging back and exactly. forth. Yep. It's true.
4: I, I can picture it and I wasn't there. And suddenly I just can relate to that sense of like, it's the pendulum swing. It's like time. It's like that's a it. clock. It's like, it's, it's a million things that happened and it all gets compressed into, she drops the phone and your mom runs out of the room.
2: That's uh, another thing. Ian, i seriously, you and I need to sit down and have dinner one night because that's, you know, it, be- that's exactly it. Be- because I think of that moment, cause we never owned one. But now, and I—I I just realized this very moment—it's probably true, uh, because of that phone swinging back and forth and me watching and do that. I now own, I believe, seven grandfather clocks. See, really, that's
4: so
0: interesting.
2: That's bizarre. Some some are wall that's hangers. So some are standing. Everywhere that I go, everywhere I've ever lived, we have lots of grandfather clocks because I love to watch that pendulum swing back and forth. It gives me peace. Uh, Isn't that weird? It's time. Yep. No,
4: it's your. It's it's it it it, it looks like time, right? Yep. I mean, it yep. just looks. There's something about it that's very therapeutic, and it's it's basic physics, and it's all these other things that get rolled into one, and I love it. But I think that's where. So, you know, there's the true crime is a story that, you know, in this case, we would investigate, we would attempt to tell a story that is true using the tools of one that is not. And so true crime stories tend to be very entertaining because they sound like, back to lore again, they sound like campfire stories in a way, and they are family stories and a lot of people can relate to it. But what could we find if we really decided? How far could we get in determining what happened?
2: I think it would be wonderful. I will reach out to you, sir. Thank you so much. What a great hour. I love this kind of radio.
4: I'm always here for you, man. If somebody cancels, call.
2: Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. All have, right. Thank you both. God bless. Toward a theory of true crime narratives, a textual analysis is available on Amazon. As he said, it's not cheap. Uh, he says it's not for everybody. Uh, yeah, it's uh, on Amazon. $63, so it's it's that kind of deal. Uh, Ian Punnett, ladies and gentlemen, a very, very smart guy, uh, and a very worldly man. I love talking to Ian. Uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Tom Bernard Show.